Hello, Hi Rock. Welcome to our daily devotional. Uh, Taylor's with us today, and we are going to do the second half of Isaiah 53. Uh, if you recall uh, from yesterday, Isaiah 53 is the fourth servant song. We see these uh, growing clarity, growing resolution of the picture of the nature of this servant that God is going to send. And we dealt with the first half yesterday, which was the servant's humiliation and the love that, that God and the servant have to be willing to go through this on the behalf of the very people who are rejecting him. And then in this second half, we're looking at the servants, not humiliation, but vindication. So we're going to be in verses 7 through 12 today. And Taylor, if you would read that for us, that would be fantastic. Let's read the word of the Lord together. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels he bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks be to God. I, you know, it's it's this passage in particular that that has led so many in the history of the church to call Isaiah the fifth gospel. We see such mm -hmm. a clear depiction, you know, five to seven hundred years before Jesus. We see such a clear depiction of the nature of this coming servant and the sacrifice that would be made. Well, uh, in verse 7, we see that uh, the, the servant is going to be oppressed and yet silent, like a lamb led to slaughter. He's going to be silent. And obviously, this reminds us so much of, of Jesus, who, I don't know, maybe Jesus even took his cue from this passage, read these words and said, here saw here was laid out the way that he was to face the challenges ahead of him. And then verse 8, it uh, tells us that he's unjustly condemned and he's struck down. And why? Well, it's it's for the rebellion of God's people, for their sins. So this is uh, very clear here that there's, again, this distinction between Israel as God's servant and this particular servant who is the faithful one of Israel. So there's a distinction between these two servants. So like if you read Bart Ehrman's book and stuff like that, and he tells you Isaiah 53 is about Israel, you can just point to this verse and say, uh, verse eight and say, no, <laughs> this is very clear that it's God. <laughs> Uh, and verse nine, he's he's done no wrong, and yet he's buried like a criminal. In fact, he's put into a rich man's grave. And I've always found this interesting because this is a his, an, a, a detail that was uh, provoked all kinds of discussion and debate um, in ancient Judaism. How is he buried with criminals, and and yet is given a, a rich man's grave? And this is a question that isn't answered until we get to the Gospels and we see Joseph of Arimathea, who is a rich man and had commissioned a new grave for him and his descendants and instead gives it to Jesus. So it's this unused grave of a rich man. So Jesus is literally buried uh, amongst the rich. 
And this begins the turnaround in this passage as, as Jesus is now goes from dying with criminals, being counting, counted as a rebel, now being buried with the rich, begins this, this tr uh, dramatic reversal. There's a, a famous theologian who said that really the Bible is a book of dramatic reversals. You see from beginning to end, all these kinds of dramatic reversals. And this is the kind of thing that should give us pause in moments of difficulty to remember that God's uh, the way that God has worked with God's people all throughout history has been through dramatic reversals. And so we shouldn't give up hope in the darkest hour because that's precisely uh, the time when God often shows uh, pow uh, power in the moment. Um, and then we get to verse 10 and you have to ask this question. Uh, this, this servant has died, given up his life, and yet he's going to have many descendants. How is that? And, and he's led to slaughter, and yet he's going to enjoy a long and prosperous life. How is that going to be? Uh, of course, reading from uh, in retrospect, rather than looking forward, uh, we can see how this is fulfilled in Jesus's life. And then in verse 11, in contrast to the two previous songs where we saw this frustration of, of the servant, uh, the, this, you know, feeling of like, why am I doing this? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not working, um, but yet the servant's still willing to be faithful. Well, here we see this frustration turned to realization where the servant is now satisfied and is able to enjoy how all of this was worth it because the servant sacrifice is going to lead many to become righteous. And, and I like to read that in terms of having a restored relationship with, with each other and with God, um, that, that kind of righteousness. Um, and this, of course, just screams Jesus, that this is Jesus. This is exactly yes. what Jesus did from the cross. No wonder this is called the fifth gospel. And then verse 12, I really love this. I think this is so rich. It says, you know, we're, we're, we've been seeing how the people were looking for a Davidic king. They were looking for a military Messiah who would conquer their enemies. And, and then God tells them about this servant who's very different than the military type of Messiahs that they were looking for. But year, yet here, God says he's going to give this person, give him the honors of, here translated as a soldier, um, as mm -hmm. it's translated, it could be translated as a great one or a king. So like a, a general or a king, God is going to honor this person as if it were, as if he were the kind of military Messiah that they are looking for, but it's because they're going to, he's going to conquer their ultimate enemy, which is sin and death rather than just the momentary military enemy of the day, which is so uh, temporary. But the, the people of God were just so locked into looking for a military leader, which is why they entirely just missed the Messiah when he did arrive, when Jesus did arrive, they didn't recognize the kind of deeper power that he had you know, and I, I, this makes me think of how with my kids, I kept trying to explain to them and, you know, we, we, they grew up in the era of superheroes, right? And, and I'm trying to explain to them, you know, even if you were to have the powers of Superman, in the end, the only thing your power can do, the, the most it can do is it can crush your enemies. It can do that. But what it cannot do and what God's power can do is it can turn enemies into friends. Or in this passage here, it can turn rebels into those who are family. What other power in the universe can do that other than the self-sacrificial power of God? And so that's what I, I see is so amazing here. They were looking for a military messiah. They're looking for a hero, even a superhero. But in the end, they just didn't have the eyes to recognize how God was giving them so much more than they asked for that it would end up clearing the way for all their enemies, especially the enemies of that were uh, far more, far deeper than uh, Rome or in this case, Assyria and Babylon, um, but sin and death itself. That is the very thing that turns us into enemies of one another and enemies of God. Uh, Taylor, I'm wondering what you see in today's mm -hmm. passage. Yeah, well, so much good stuff there. You know, um, 
I think uh, you, something that caught my ear, particularly you said, is that um, you know, the Bible is a, is a series of stories of great reversals. And I think about this is a simple point, but it, stick in here. Um, there's a really simple question, but I don't think we ask it a lot, which is what is a story? And I was listening to uh, a great podcast by Malcolm Gladwell, who's a renowned author. And he has a simple definition of, of what makes a story. He says a story is something that subverts your expectations. Otherwise, it's just an anecdote. If you if you kind of know where it's going to go, it's an anecdote. But if it betrays the listener's expectation or if it subverts the listener's expectation, then then that's a story that that all of a sudden catches your attention. And so why I say that is I think that sometimes there's people who are uh, who, who we know how the story ends. Like, as you said, you know, it would be it's so hard to read this and not see Jesus. And I think your phrase was like, it just kind of screams Jesus. And it does. It's like, why put that detail of the rich man in there? I mean, it feels like the prophecy is setting itself up for failure. And yet that is a really crucial detail of Jesus's death. And th there it is. And that adds all the more validity to it. But that can kind of lose some of its luster or wonder on us because we're sitting 2000 years past the fulfillment of this prophecy, let alone the giving of this prophecy, which is another six, 700 years before that. And so it, you know, it's kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, it's that part of, it's kind of like when you watch a Christmas movie that you've seen every, every year since you've been, you know, a kid and it's like, well, it's great, but I kind of know how it's going to go. Um, I'm reminded just as a brief story. I, I was hanging out with a bunch of pastors in our denomination last week and one pastor, she was telling me that she started watching The Chosen and she had just been into the first season and she was talking with a friend who'd seen all the seasons and her friend said, oh, wait, 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 I don't want to spoil it for you. And she said, I, I know, I know. And so I, I think about this a lot of times when we read scripture and we know how it ends, we can kind of, the, the drama of it can be lost on it. So what I wanted to point out today is that for, you know, best scholarly guests, are that I'm not guesses estimate estimations I shouldn't say guesses that that Isaiah was written probably somewhere around 700 ish give or take BC or BCE and so you think that's probably in the ballpark of 10 generations give or take before Jesus is born is crucified and is resurrected and so you said and and I think that you know you you pointed out that this was a big question in in Jewish literature and thought and debate for a long time. And, and now so much, it's not so much. So the question is, what do we do? I, what, what for me, my, the question that comes to me is what do we do when we receive a word from God and we don't understand it and it's yet to come to pass? How, how do we trust God that God's going to live into his promise? I mean, we can look at all the scriptural places where God has done that yet, but it's really hard because I would say like, you know, this is, I don't want to say easy to interpret, but it's obvious. Like the main themes are so obvious in light of the gospel. But for a long time, I think that it makes sense that, you know, scholars are looking at this and just like, what? <laughs> I mean, what? It's like so it's obscure. And the literary style is very bizarre compared to the texts around it. It's 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 a it's a strange text in so many ways. And yet now it's so obvious. And so the lesson I take from this is that we see in this God's character. We see that God is a God who will, who will, who will suffer for us on our behalf. Who cares about justice? Who will vindicate the oppressed? And whose whose view of history is much longer than ours? And so, uh, you know, it's it's great if we go to this text and we say, "Oh, look, this validates the the reality of Jesus as Messiah." Yep, that's great. But what's the next step? Where do we go from there? What type of God, what type of Messiah is Jesus? Is he willing to suffer for us? Yes. 
Is he, is he just? Yes. Is he true? Yes. And also he keeps his promises. And so I think there's a, there's a great uh, deep truth for us that it, it's, it's simple and yet it's profound, which is that oftentimes God will speak a word to us and it may be a long time before we fully understand. We're talking 700 years, give or take here, uh, before this comes into full fulfillment. And yet it came into full fulfillment. I mean, even the last details. And so uh, this is a word for me. It's convicting when I feel that God has laid something on my heart or spoken something to me. And then I'm sitting around going like, all right, um, you know, chop, chop, God. And it, it, things just don't happen on my time. Yet we can see time and time again, uh, God's character remains the same, even if God's timing is it's not ours. So I take from this multiple layers and levels of good news and hope. You, you know, when you ask the question, um, what do you do when you receive, when you have a word from God and you don't understand it and it's hard to believe? And my immediate thought was you do what Mary did. You treasure these things in your heart. Mm -hmm. Like she received a word mm -hmm. that she didn't understand. Like, how how is this going to happen? I'm, and the angel assures her that the Holy Spirit is going to come and this is God's going to make this happen. She's like, all right. And she treasures these things in her heart. It's almost like there's this expectancy saying, I don't understand it. I believe it, but I don't understand it. So I'm going to look for its fulfillment. I'm going to look for yeah. the way that there's this anticipation of like that God is going to bring this to, to happen. So I'm going to treasure these things in my heart until that happens. I think that can be really the response that that we're invited into. Well said. Well said. Well, uh, Taylor, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to uh, wrap us up and, and close us in prayer. Yeah, I'd love to. Let's pray. Jesus. We love you and we are so grateful that you have been faithful and present with humanity since the very beginning, that you took on the suffering of the whole world, that you redeemed us and that you've saved us. We cannot save ourselves. And so we thank you for the trials and the tribulations that you endured, for the great love that you have for us and the whole world that has inspired you to endure this sacrifice. May we be inspired by your sacrifice for us to sacrifice in the name of love for others. May we be part of your hope and your healing and your reconciling work in the world because you first loved us. All this we pray in your loving and powerful name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you everyone for being with us today. T Taylor, thank you for joining us. And yeah. I hope that we can all leave here uh, holding God's promises in our heart, treasuring them in our hearts and looking eagerly for mm. their fulfillment. So go in peace. Amen. <laughs>